You've seen all kinds of movies, but you've never seen anything like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Rocky Horror Picture Show is wonderfully weird. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic film. I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And Samantha Ellis, I'm assuming, is also visiting the planet of Transylvania because she's not here this episode, but she is here in spirit. But thankfully, on our road to 100 episodes, we have another guest with us today, the awesome and amazing Scott Michaels. Scott, how are you? I'm doing great today. Thank you both for having me on today. Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm so happy that we finally got you on. Scott was supposed to be on last year when we did our Freaks episode that we just couldn't make the timing work. But we got him on today. And Scott is awesome, in case you guys don't know that. He is the best. Scott, for people who don't know who you are, can you give us a little background on what you do and the amazing tours and stuff you do out here in LA? Sure. I, I have a company called Dearly Departed Tours and, and our speciality is the dark side of Hollywood. And we, we're, we're lighthearted as well in that regard, but uh, we love Hollywood history. My interests tend to lean towards the more fantastic and uh, the dark side, you know, where people died is, is my main interest. So we have the Tragical History Tour. I do a true crime tour. I do a Helter Skelter tour based solely on the Tate LaBianca murders. And I've got a website called Find death.com which I document the ends of people's lives and I uh, have a YouTube channel where I also make little mini documentaries about people and how they died uh, a lot of people that really don't have a lot of focus uh, to them like the young man who was killed at Sharon Tate's house Stephen Parent a lot of people don't know who he was so we went out and find out where he lived and where he went to school and, and more about the kid himself very uh, very victim oriented and we had our museum up until March of this year on Hollywood Boulevard to show off all the weird artifacts I've collected over the years. Mae West's teeth and John Denver's airplane and Rock Hudson's deathbed. And of course, of course, the Jane Mansfield car. So uh, like the real car. So yeah, it's been collecting and, and sharing stories for, I don't know, about 25 years or so. So, and, and luckily I, I met you, lovely you and your mom and uh, through Elisa and then I met April. And it's, it's been so much fun uh, getting to know more people that are interested in this. If you were in LA, I cannot stress enough. I've written about it. I've talked about it. Scott's tours are like the best thing to do if you, even if you're a fan of like classic Hollywood, it doesn't sound like it would lend itself to an old Hollywood storytelling. But I mean, you you did a Gene Harlow tour at one point. I know Elisa does a, a Marilyn tour. So you guys do a lot more classic film stuff than I would say some of the more prominent tour companies aimed at classic film out here in Los Angeles. So that's my that's my shameless plug for for your tours. But yeah, it's it's always fun. I'll, it's, wait, I'll, I'll back that up. I've done the Helter Skelter yes, tour. Yes, that's the best. And then talked about it for like four years after. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's just that yeah. we're very victim oriented and detail oriented. Yes. Uh, and so that that's an, it's important to get the right stories out there. And like Kristen, you just said, I don't think there's a lot of tour companies out there that, could, that even know who Gene Harlow is. So uh, and the, the fact that Elisa from LA Woman Tours and I do that, her it's her 
tour. I just host it with the uh, the Gene Harlow tour and the Maryland tour. You know, it's a real it's a real testament to old Hollywood. And there are still some of us out there that love it. Uh, you know, we're a dying breed. <laughs> exactly. I I tell I tell the story to people when I bring up dearly departed tours. But as a young girl who discovered the internet and spent I think about two months down the rabbit hole of all the find a death pages and then scared the crap out of herself for about a year and a half. Uh, When you read that much death imagery, you're like, oh, that's actually disturbing. But yeah, it's to say that if you had told, you know, 14 year old Kristen that she would be friends with the guy who runs that website, um, she would not have believed you. So (laughs) fun fact. But we are here talking today about another movie that I know is is close to Scott's heart, uh, Outside of Freaks, which again, Freaks is a great movie shameless plug for the episode that we did on it uh, a while back but we're talking about 1975's the rocky horror picture show the ultimate in cult cinema and a movie that i rewatched last night and i'm very excited to have a conversation about it because i don't think there is a lot of conversation about the movie everybody talks about the fandom and the the live element to it and i don't know if we necessarily get to talk about the content of the film nowadays so I'll, I'm going to sum up the plot so much as you can sum up the plot of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is that you have two characters, lovely, clean cut. They keep saying kids in the trailer, but they're not children at all. They're, you know, in their, their late 20s. Brad and Janet, played by Susan Sarandon and Barry Boswick, who are going to visit a family friend after getting newly engaged. And they end up at the mysterious house of Dr. Frankenfurter, played by Tim Curry on the night that he is going to unveil his creature, a beautiful man played by Peter Hinwood named Rocky Horror. Music ensues, questions abound, and a movie that I love so much, but I I don't necessarily know why. Uh, I just know that I love it. So I think everybody has a story about the first time that they've seen this. Scott, what was your background with this prior to recording? And do you remember the first time you experienced this? Yeah, well, the first time I ever heard about it, there there was a, a news show that used to be on uh, every evening uh, called PM Magazine, and that was back in the mid to late 70s. And I, they did an expose or a little thing about the, them showing the Rocky Horror Picture Show in New York. And and I saw everyone getting out and yelling and dancing, and, and I'd never seen anything like that before. So I begged my brother, I was 15 at the time, to take me to a Friday night showing. It was nearby, thankfully, and I didn't know anything about the movie, but I knew that I brought toast and I brought hot dogs. And I don't know, I just think I didn't know anything about it. But it was a real, uh, it was a real treat to sit through it and to see everyone having such a good time in the dark. And it was, you know, as a kid who's, you know, growing up kind of confused uh, about his own, you know, my own place in the world, didn't fit into this, didn't fit into that. You know, I was gay. It was like, it was all over the place. And all of a sudden, boom, there it was. It's a whole bunch of people in the dark having a good time and dancing and to this wacky horror movie, which looked amazing. The music's great. So, uh, so yeah, it was a real, and then that was like, this. these are my people. You know, that was that was the first time. So I, when I when I was attracted to it, that was why it was because of the camaraderie. Drea, what about you? Well, I'm originally from the Twin Cities, as you may or may not know. And so I definitely remember the first time going to see it at the Uptown in Minneapolis, which is where our live screening was. But I am 
pretty certain that before I experienced it as like the meta performance upon performance live spectacle that it was that I saw it as a rental and as someone who had been like a huge Annie fan and a Clue fan seeing Tim Curry it took my that's when I understood oh the like range of possibilities for an actor and you know the idea of seeing someone that I love so much in something it's something else entirely was really delicious to me. I've also tried to replicate that eyeshadow many times in my life and failed because you know you need to use a heavy hand with it. That's the secret. And if you are being timid, you, yeah, I had to, I think it wasn't until I moved to LA I had to leave the Midwest to get enough of like a boldness with eyeshadow to really pack it on there. But yeah, I saw it and I also I agree with Scott there's something about the community of it that unlocked uh, the idea of how I see films now which are as a social enterprise. It's something that's ironic because you can Definitely. And I do. Most films I see, I see by myself. You take them in, they're this solitary pursuit. But I think of movie going and watching movies as a social entity because it's some, well, it was, it's something to look forward to. You meet people out, you go and you do things and then you talk about the movie. And so a movie like this, where I'm like, oh, not only do I have so much to discuss about what the heck I just saw. I also need someone to explain to me why I'm yelling at this man about his neck. I want to learn all of these lines. Why am I holding rice? And so I I just love like anything that's gonna, a movie that's going to necessitate me having an instruction manual, I'm down for. I want that. I want that from every movie. They don't all deserve them, but that's what I want. (laughs) So I think I'm the only one of the group that has not seen this live. I've only seen this on DVD. So I saw this probably sophomore year of high school. I had a quote-unquote bad friend who who introduced me to a lot of really weird stuff like like uh, Lincoln Park in the, the the you know early aught and she brought over this it was a double feature with this and Monty Python's Holy Grail and so we watched both of them back to back and I just knew that I loved musicals but I did not know musicals like you know Rocky Horror as a musical and I was just enthralled with this weirdness and the fact that I had only ever known Tim Curry from the Home Alone 2 movie um, and some other things, but I was just like, oh, and Susan Sarandon's like really young and what is this music and why is there no plot? And, you know, the sexuality angle is really fascinating. So I was just like, for me, there was this cachet of like the cool kids were watching this. And if I was watching this, then I was a cool kid, which I was distinctively not. So, you know, it kind of felt like this, this underground element to it that you know you you kind of it was a rite of passage if you were cool enough to know about it then you were in and I remember that I think it was like my ninth I probably I did I might have seen this earlier in my life before high school because I remember at like our eighth grade promotion dance my my aforementioned friend and I got them to play the time warp at this dance and it's a bunch of eighth graders being like what the hell is this song and you know me and my friend are doing the dance and people are just looking at us like 
what? Um, so then you realize that, you know, Rocky Horror is cool to like a group of people, but maybe not in suburban Sacramento in the eighth grade. Well, so, I was going to say, when you said it's the movie that tells you who the cool kids are, it's it's also the movie that completely changes who the cool kids are. Like, right, you're, right. You're, you're cool you're cool people in whatever sphere you are when you see it, this sort of typically cool are maybe not the ones that are cool enough to uh, be experiencing this. So it's, another it's bonus. People, people react differently to this film. When I, when we were going to see it, this is, it came out in 75. So it was about 70, 78 is when I started seeing it. I think late 77 or 78. And it was not the cool kids going to see this movie. You know, it was definitely not. I, I had, I remember in high school, I had pictures of, uh, these people on my locker, you know, and people were taking him down, calling me a faggot and all that kind of stuff, you know, because it was a different thing. A guy in fishnets, you know, I have never wanted to wear fishnets in my life, but I love this movie and it celebrates so many odd people. It's interesting now because those same people who are like ripping my pictures down and calling me these awful words are now on Facebook going, oh God, remember all those great times we had at Rocky Horror? I'm like, Nah, actually, no, <laughs> you weren't there. Then <laughs> I remember, you know, but it, it's just sort of funny how in retrospect, you know, people have always embraced it. But no, 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 no. It was not that way. Not in America. It was It's the equivalent of the amount of people who said they were at Woodstock, who <laughs> like compared yeah, to the actual number of people at Woodstock, everyone who says they would there would have make it like a million five. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it definitely uh, grew into a bigger thing. When, I mean, I think when it, it was a big deal when it came out on VHS, you know, there was, it was a hundred dollar video when it came out and they had a, you know, a limited printing. It was a big deal. And, you know, now it's every five years they do another anniversary edition, but it was never going to be released again. And it was, it was a big deal. The first time seeing that in a theater, well, without an audience, because one time I went and there was no audience, like nobody showed up and, and, uh, and there might've been 10 people in the audience and to hear the birds and, and you know, in the, in the graveyard and stuff like that. It was just something, wow, it's like a whole different movie. Seeing it on video is like a whole different movie. At that point when it came out, I thought, no, this is, I don't want to ever see it this way again because I love the whole audience thing, but I've come to, to really appreciate both. I really have. And actually the, the audience participation thing has turned into something really different nowadays than it was too. It was organic back then. And now, like, you know, you'd have 10 riffraffs or 10 magentas showing up, you know, and we all did the time warp and you wore whatever the hell you wanted. Well, no, now you have to audition. And tonight I'm going to be the riffraff, you know, and if I'm not going to make it, well, then this other guy, the shadow casts are really regimented and you, you, you know, it's just taking the fun out of it. You know, we're just whipping stuff around and getting up and dancing, but it's really, really regimented. And, and, and that's all good. You know, obviously it means enough to the to people that do that but uh, to me it was just a hoot it was just a lot of fun well to go to what you were saying about the changes and the appreciation for it now i also feel that rocky horror is one of those musicals that kind of gets that what i call tweeification of younger people really embracing it which is great but at the same time it's become incredibly commodified like i remember what was it, two years ago when Fox did the live performance of it on TV? And it's one of those musicals that I feel a lot of people remember it and they enjoy it, but it's become very watered down for the youth. And they have to edit it. So, you know, they take out a lot of the language and the the sexuality. I mean, I remember when the when the Glee episode did Rocky Horror, I think they changed half the lyrics to to Susan Sarandon's big number because it's a pretty sex 
sexy song, but it's like too sexy for Fox television at primetime. And I find that that's really funny to me that it's like, it's one of those musicals that kids now are kind of singing, but they don't really understand what they're saying. And it's become very lucrative for people that want to profit off of it, especially like from a network standpoint. And that just seems so anathema to what it is. It is interesting because I think you are talking literally a profit thing. The Because uh, when the movie was made, you know, Richard O'Brien wrote it and a man by the name of Michael White produced it at the Royal Court. Now, Lou Adler came to see it at, at in, in London and they decided they were going to produce the movie. So it became a Lou Adler, Michael White production. Somehow Michael White fell out of it and now Lou owns the film and Richard and, and everyone who was in it gets a small part of it. But the live show is always going to be now Richard O'Brien's Rocky Horror show because he still owns the rights to the live show but but you're right about that because Richard doesn't get anything hardly at all for for uh for when it's broadcast you know although it's his music and everything he he might get a, a, a bit of the music money but uh but as far as the Rocky Horror Picture Show goes that all mostly goes to Lou Adler so Richard's income is is solely the show but see it's funny because in America the show went away you know it'll come around once every couple of years but the movie's forever in Britain it's always the play and the movie comes around every couple of years. It's, it's interesting. So uh, the play never goes away in places like Britain and Australia and New Zealand, where Richard's from. But, the, you know, that's his, that's Richard's uh, baby is the play. But there's, it's interesting because there's a lot of infighting, a lot of rights issues, a lot of uh, with the creative team. And uh, and Richard said, he says, uh, you know, something you'll notice if it, he says success has many fathers, but failure is always an orphan. So because we're talking about it 50 years or 45 years later, you know, there's still people battling over because there's money to be made. But, you know, if it, if it flopped like like Shock Treatment did or a couple of his other plays afterwards, which Shock Treatment had some great music in it, but uh, it wasn't a terrific movie. But nobody wants to own it. But Rocky is like everyone wants a piece of that. What I think, too, with stuff like Glee and, and especially the live performance, it almost feels like this kind of softening, this watering down of what made it so controversial at the time. And, and I guess we can start kind of getting into the plot, but it's really amazing to watch this in 2020 and notice how both dated and revolutionary, it seems, especially for the LGBTQ and the trans community. Tim Curry's character, you know, they're from the the planet transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. I mean, the wording is, the verbiage is is dated in terms of how we look at it. But I mean, in 1975, as Scott mentioned, you know, having a guy in fishnets and in a corset with lipstick, but it's obvious that he's male. Like that whole, that discussion of, of gender bending and and having sex with with all genders was in, was shocking but i mean if you also look at it in 1975 the whole concept of sex was changing and especially I think Richard O'Brien said that he based a lot of this on the glam rock scene of Britain at the time which was all about having sex with men and women and makeup makeup, and taking those those typically female identified items and putting them on a male body and I think that that's something that's really intensified as the trans community is, has become more prominent with their appreciation of the show um, but I, I think too there's also a little controversy from that same group about how it's a bit stereotypical and again you keep you know coming back to the non-trans definitions of what a transgender person is so it's it's weird that we 
that angle of the movie is heavily promoted and celebrated, but at the same time, it doesn't really seem to ever get talked about in the context of the feature. The, I mean, it's interesting about how people, you know, like you say, the verbiage, the the the, the terms that people use nowadays to pigeonhole people. I mean, because you, you call it what you want to call it, but you're pigeonholing it. If you say trans, if you say black trans, if you say this, if you say that, you are pigeonholing it. So it's, but but back in the day, the people that are working really hard at doing that nowadays weren't around back then to realize the way society was back then. So Tim was not a drag queen, you know, Tim was, Tim was a guy that wore clothes who like women and men. And that was the whole point of it. It was sort of like a, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't one particular thing. I know the song says transvestite, but that's really the only time it's ever mentioned there. And that's what guys who dress like women were called back then. And it's also, it's important to know that, you know, when they, when they made it at the Royal court, when it was released in, in 73, when it came out, the Royal court was at the end of King's road. And the other end of King's road was Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood shop called sex. And that's where punk started. That's where Sid Vicious worked behind the counter. So between Sue Blaine designing the costumes at the Royal Court and Vivian Westwood and, and Malcolm McDowell on the other side of King's Road and probably about six city blocks in between, that's where the whole punk thing came from. And so they're both literally responsible for punk that look, the distressed, the ripped fishnets and the the, the distressed jackets. And it, it's really interesting. So a lot of people say Sue Blaine invented the look. A lot of people say Vivian Westwood did, but it was actually that whole era, that whole time right in the King's Road. It was like the uh, lightning in a bottle time. It really was. And Rocky and punk rock both were part of that big time. I think that the the other thing that stood out to me in re-watching this with my 2020 eyes, my jaded, horrified 2020 eyes, was in, in line of seeing how Rocky presents, it actually felt more consistent with what I think of currently as like gender fluid or gender queer versus, you know, one of the fears of the transgender community is that the misconception of seeing it's why it's why when you cast a straight cis actor as a trans character you're perpetuating these horrible concepts of like oh it's a man in a wig whereas with dr frankenfurter i never got the sense that dr frankenfurter was trying to look like a woman i got a sense that dr frankenfurter was a man who liked wearing makeup heels and a corset and i think sorry frank is richard i mean richard would have been frank if he could have been Richard is right. very comfortable in a dress and heels, you know? And, yeah. and he's also, I mean, that, not that that's a detriment or anything. He's also happily married and has children. He's been married a few times. So he has no interest in men in that regard. No problem with it either. But Richard really embraces his femininity. You know, he loves he loves that. So he, he could have been frank. He, I think he would have been. Yeah, I think, but I love that. And I loved the, you know, there's this by the end when you see the entire cast in that getup, like you see, you have Brad and Janet and who else is Rocky not magic and, uh, and Rocky yeah, yeah that Columbia, they're all yeah, yeah. Columbia thank you that they're all um they're all embracing it everyone's wearing it and that made it more so much more interesting to me than the like anomaly one-off of a single character in this cast that found like release or excitement and I think that's one of the reasons this stayed for so long was the freedom of like yeah 
try a corset. Oh, these heels are going to hurt, but give them a whirl. Like, and the, it's, it's such a more fun and again, using the term fluid, but like a fluid idea of who can wear what and feel sexy or fun wearing that. Then it is just a representational idea of what trans is but it is true it's fun the the way that i missed now when they use the word transvestite in a way that i never would have forever ago and and having the the idea of the terminology or a growing familiarity with different cultures and communities how it changes your viewing of things is uh, and how that's changed back then it was just a guy that liked wearing women's clothes well frank didn't i mean it was it, frank was an anomaly you know but back then they were Fran- they were called cross dressers or, or transvestites you know so i could never fault people for saying that but at least they're my age because that's the way we were brought up true true sure we try to learn different things but again it's just you know frank was just a guy who or yeah a guy who just loved to get off with guys and girls and wear fun you know lady ladies underwear and then it turned that everyone kind of did so uh you know it's it's never been my thing personally but i have no problem with any of that it was just fun to see go people just go who cares you know we're just having a good time and that's what it, that's what it really seemed like it started as something rather sinister in the film it ended up just having a good time then it went back to sinister but uh, <laughs> yeah the okay so on the movie side of it the other thing as we're saying of like it's been a few years since i've seen this and because i've most recently again saw it in the context of sort of the theatrical spectacle like the fun of it i in watching it now and i've been taking in so many more classic movies or looking at things with not an academic viewpoint but certainly like this discussing them in a more public setting i with just the opening song i was like how in the world have i not watched all of the deep cuts that are being referenced in this song or, you know, watching it now. Certainly when I first saw this, I wasn't familiar with Hammer films. And so, like, having just the small nods, there's so much threaded through Rocky Horror that just speaks to film history and both, like, schlocky and good, like, oh, I guess, good and schlocky, oh. like, right? That there's there's things in the set. There was a Dr. Caligari moment I didn't see coming. Like, there's all these things that are just cooked in there so nicely. So I'd love to get into that. I'm sure, Scott, you have a much deeper knowledge of this. Kristen never fails with her deep knowledge of things. So any, any insights on those I'd love to hear about. When the, when the film was originally made, it was supposed to be like The Wizard of Oz. Okay, it was going to be a black and white film up until the time Frank comes down the elevator and boom, was it going to go to color? As soon as he turned around the lips on his face, boom, that was going to be the moment. It ended up not working out that way and, and, and the revisions in the script were such. But at the beginning of the film, when they do science fiction double feature and it's Patricia Quinn's lips singing Richard's voice, uh, that was supposed to be a montage of all those movies, but they didn't get the rights to them. In fact, it's funny because Fox wouldn't even let them use their own rights to their logo. When Columbia, they have the RKO pictures, that was supposed to be Fox, but Fox wouldn't let them use it. So it was a Fox production. So they, that's why they went with RKO. But if you see the Fox version, the television version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show they did a few days, a few years ago with Laverne Fox, the opening of that scene with the usherette and, and through the big mansion, that is exactly how the original movie was supposed to be. With, with them, you know, an usherette walking through the theater and showing these old posters that's 
that was the original opening, which was really wonder. That was the best part of the movie to me. Was I, I love that song. I love all the songs, but that song in particular is my favorite. And the opening of that was just perfect. It kind of fizzled from there, but I don't care because I love the music, you know. And I love Glee when they did it. It was a hoot, you know. Uh, it doesn't doesn't affect the original to me. Uh, it's just fun music to me. But uh, I I really enjoyed that. The music is so much better. I mean, I I don't know why I say that I remembered because I remember every word, but rewatching it, I'm like, oh, this movie, I think it's because I was in rewatching it, comparing it with the films that it's referencing. Mm-hmm. The reason it's so much elevated is because the music is so, so good. And, yeah. there, and there, so much of that was just thrown thrown together. You know, when they were making the play, for instance, they needed a song for Dr. Scott. And Richard went home and wrote Eddie's Teddy that night and came back to the production with it. And they, they you know, they put it into the show that weekend. So it was kind of, you know, it was just winging it. Yeah, it was, again, lightning in a bottle, those guys. Yeah, the emphasis on classic film. I know when I was doing my research, you know, Richard O'Brien said that he drew heavily on B-movies and sci-fi films and kind of this doomsday show. Of, of some of those movies and I think especially having seen Plan 9 from Outer Space at this point more than once really helps in your viewing especially the scenes with the criminologist and if you've seen you know any of those kind of B movies where you have quote unquote the government you know man kind of telling you that this is totally based on true events that really helps and I think it also is a celebration a sly celebration of that classic era you know when uh Frank is singing, I think it's I'm Going Home at the end. He talks about, you know, wanting to dress like Fay Ray, that elegance and that warmth of a classic feature like this, even though it's, you know, all doomsday and, and insanity. But there's something comforting and fun about that that is mimicked in the feature film. I am interested in revisiting. I remember seeing the Laverne Cox Rocky Horror and not liking it at all. But seeing is how I am now obsessed with Hades Town. I kind of want to go back and listen to the Reeve Carney parts because he played Riff Raff in that, which I think would be really fun. But I think that that, that emphasis on classic feature filmmaking just comes through so clearly in a movie that for many people just doesn't have a plot. I I do want to bring up, I think that more than any other character, and I noticed it a lot this time around, Eddie is kind of the star of this film in many ways. I mean, he gets two songs. He gets a song for himself and a song written for about him. Eddie's death is the catalyst of the second half of the movie. Did not really realize how much of a force Meatloaf is in this movie, but the plot really does hinge around him. Uh, did anybody else notice that on, on a reviewing or, or from the first go-round? I didn't notice it as a hinge. My main thought watching this time was that Jack Black owes Meatloaf, like... <laughs> an entire estate somewhere because so much of what he's done and perfected seems to be lifted from what Eddie's giving us. I do, I, it had never occurred to me the lack of plot of this film. I mean, every film has a plot and this does. It has a an A to a B to a C, we get there. But I hadn't, it had never stood out as like nonsensical or what? Like every step of the way is, that's completely unnecessary when they start taking their clothes off when brad and janet start taking their clothes off at the beginning and they're like he's like just oh just go along with it that it never pinged me when i was young as what why 
you just need a phone. What is happening? Where is this? It's like, no, yeah, this is just what's happening. The, 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 so the Eddie didn't stand out to me. What did stand out to me was this film is a great example of shooting the crap out of a space. Like there's not even just in the vent. There's only like four or five rooms that we see total. Like throughout, we're in, you know we're in the sort of weird double layer medical room that has a tank and a pool. Like we're in that room a lot. We're on and how they shoot it, the choreography for all of this, because we've seen so many musicals now where either how they shoot the dancing poorly or really well enhances everything. And this is a movie where it's like, oh, we have limited access, limited funds, but everything is done in an interesting way. To me, my Eddie moment that stood out was how they shoot the replica of both Janet and Brad finding themselves sleeping with Dr. Frankenfurter. And it's like through this gauze, it's backlit. They're mirror images of each other and their responses are very mirrored. And even that, as someone who watches because of of being a festival programmer, an obscene amount of low-budget films, there's so much inventive filmmaking in this that I had never really credited for of, oh yeah, you got in there, you moved things around, you lit the crap out of it. Eddie, as a as a narrative point, next time, Kristen, next time, I'll look for the Eddie hook. Well, there's certainly, there's, I mean, m- you know, Mary Shelley should have got a screenwriting credit, too, for this movie, you know? <laughs> it was, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're right about Eddie, you're, right, you're absolutely right. I mean, but it started, it's like any B movie, it just sort of, or C or D movie, you know, it starts out with the two kids who ended up going, like you said, to this place in the old mansion. And then, you know, there is the Frank Frankenstein, which is actually Rocky, the you know, who is basically invented to be a sex doll. <laughs> and, then, and then you have the man who was his original sex doll, who was Eddie, which is sort of interesting. And then splitting his brain between the two. Of them. It's, it's, yeah, it's schlock, most definitely. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's. Okay, you just casually said Eddie was the original sex doll and blew blew my mind because that was one of those things when I was looking at it there was a ton of narrative threads that I couldn't necessarily tie and when they all of a sudden when we go when we meet Eddie we're deep into this movie we just see a sign that says like deep freeze storage I'm like why who is why is this (laughs) so like the introduction of Eddie onward has never made sense to me and I've never once connected it with that's what he was initially doing. Well, actually, you know, I, I should correct myself because Eddie was originally Columbia's boyfriend. And in the credits, it says ex-delivery boy. And during the film, Frank says, do you think I made a mistake splitting his brain in between the two of them? So Eddie Eddie was probably not the sex doll for Frank, but he was involved with Columbia. And then his brain was taken out and split to give him to Rocky. Yeah, because Columbia says that Frank spurned her for Eddie. And then he, so essentially, Frank is just a bad boyfriend and just is fickle. But I think that that's something that I want, I noticed too, you know, everybody tries to kind of say, what is the meaning of a movie? We have to talk, you know, about what does this movie mean? And in watching this, especially coming in at 1975 and women's liberation is, is in the process and you see all these changes, I think like at this point they were saying, you know, the divorce rate 
rate was going up, but I was watching it this time really thinking about how it's a domestic film when you really think about it. It starts out with Brad and Janet at a wedding, um, and Brad is kind of compelled to propose at that point, and, you know, the whole movie from there on out is about romantic relationships and how characters are just kind of sleeping around. But I I was almost thinking, so is this essentially a a phantasmagoric dreamscape about not getting married? Like, don't get married because this is the the world you're going to miss out on or, or something like that. At the same time, when we're talking about kind of the LGBTQ element of this movie, I've read theories. I don't know if I believe them, but I actually was reading some stuff that people had uh, academically written about how this is essentially Brad's story of having feelings for Ralph, the guy that he meets or their friend at the beginning oh and <laughs> his own, his own book coming to grips with like maybe being gay uh, again i don't know if i believe that but there's a lot of people trying to deduce a meaning of what this movie is is talking about i kind of lean more toward the marriage thing than anything else but is this a movie that defies meaning is there a meaning it was really honestly just a bunch of people having a good time it really was <laughs> i mean you know the filmmakers you know I, I i it was explained to me a thousand times it was having fun it was their tribute to science Science fiction. It was their tribute to, you know, fluidity. It was their tribute to cool music. It was their, you know, I, it was American, you know, because it was a British, uh, almost a completely, it was filmed in Britain, a lot of Australians in the movie, but I don't think it was that deep, you know, I think it was really just a lot of fun. The movie, the original show was like an hour long and it was just debauchery and fun. So, you know, maybe, maybe that element is in there, but I, I, I tend to go with, it was just happening. I'm, I'm all for debauchery and fun. I think, I think that's, something that you know i know i have i have some friends who watch movies and they say you know not everything has to have meaning you know why does it have to all mean something and i always find that to be like why is my brain hardwired to think that way but no i i'm all for embracing debauchery and chaos Drea, what do you think well i was gonna say i think that it's it's a little to me it reads as both that the intent comes across that they're having fun that it's just about throwing all sorts of absurdity or kink or ridiculousness at the screen but i also think you know if you're looking at the early 70s and what cinema is giving us in terms of marital strife and what the home should look like and what what the trajectory for a male female couple should be i think it's impossible not to want to read into that or if anything if the combination of those things is just a reminder that oh you can be in a couple and also still have fun and play around and do experiment with things. So I, th- I think that there's a good combo of that. I do think that Brad has the most interesting arc in all of this in that, I mean, notably, stupidly uptight when we meet him, right? Barry Boswick is so wonderful in this that everyone's so wonderful in this. I love re-seeing them, but he's like a very handsome Peabody, you know? He's just like this tall string bean of a cute nerd, but he's a pretty classic leading man kind of vibe. And so seeing him get to go through and have, that was the other thing I was on the lookout for in that um, scene. I was taught they're mirroring scenes behind the, the gauze that I was like, ooh, am I going to have consent worry in this? And it is phrased in a way that both Brad and Janet 
are actively participating. And by the end, when they are all in their gear, Brad is the one that's like, yes, this corset and heels, I am unlocked. And I like reading that to mean that he and Janet can still explore that together or he can go find a Rocky of his own. Like there, it, it added a fun. So to me, it's less needing to decide between the kind of messaging of it and more the freedom of that messaging is the message. Is that, it's like the journey is better than the destination. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think that I feel that way about the Janet. I, Susan Sarandon's delightful in this. And I think too, the, the concept of her being a woman who is very like nice and pretty, you know, she's dressed in pink at the beginning. And by the end of the movie is like in a bra and a slip, getting down in a weird rainbow colored bot with some hot guy. Like, I applaud that. I applaud, like, yay, feminism. That should just be. And I think that that's where that element of B-movie schlockfest comes from because most of those movies, your Plan Nines, you know, your your Castle, uh, William Castle features are about, you know, the American family going off on this weird journey to another destination and how crazy it gets. And like this embraces that whole concept. Um, I did want to talk to, to Scott. I know that a key part of the museum when it was open, it was your Rocky Horror section. You had a whole like little area devoted to that. Can you talk about getting into the collecting of stuff uh, from this movie. When, when I lived in England, uh, I was there for about six years and uh, I had a lot of time on my hands. So, and Rocky was one of my favorite movies. So I started looking for some of the people that were in it. Now my ex used to have a television program there, a talk show, and he would often ask me, you know, who do you want to meet? Well, I always wanted to meet Pat Quinn who played Magenta. So he had her on and I got to meet her and it was like, I couldn't even speak, I was so excited. And uh, and we got to talking, Pat and I, and she wanted to write a book. So I met up with her and several times and you know, we're getting interviews. Well, I, I couldn't sell that book. But in the meantime, I was looking for more people. So my next person that I found was Sadie Corey, who was the Transylvanian. She was four foot two. And she was the the uh, the little person in the movie. And well, she and I, we, she became one of my closest friends. But through her, I got the name of Pam Obermeyer, who was the uh, the black girl that was in the movie. And through Pam, I got this number. And then I got Perry Bennett and all these. And these are literally in the movie, the Munchkins, you know, the Transylvanians were the Munchkins, the whole Wizard of Oz thing. In fact, if you listen, there's a part in I'm Going Home where literally a riff from Somewhere Over the Rainbow comes in, you know, it's uh, so I got to meet all those guys and then ultimately chased down Barry and Susan. And, you know, the only one I actually didn't speak to was Tim, who threatened to, to sue when he saw the original book. You know, it was just it, that's how I started. So I, at, at that point, I think I was the only person to actually ever interviewed Peter Henwood, who played the monster, Rocky. And through him, he gave me his script. He just sent it to me, his, his shooting script, Polaroid pictures, handwritten notes, you know, jump here, say this here. Although he didn't say a single thing. He didn't even, he didn't even grunt in the movie. They had someone else coming in dub everything but uh, Peter sent me his script and said here for what it's worth here's my uh, here's my script for your collection Sadie gave me her costume that she did the time warp in because uh, the costumer Sue Blaine didn't have a costume that would fit Sadie because you know she was not a conventional shaped person so Sadie had her own suit so she gave it to me and and then I got to meet uh, Timmy Wong who was Richard's wife at the time uh, of making the movie and she saved everything I mean she has the uh, the frame from the tra- sonic trans Transducer, you know, that uh, with the with the thing that you pull 
And, uh, and she had these two original models that, uh, that Brian Thompson built of Frank's bedroom and of the church that they were engaged in. And I got those. So, and, the, and Sadie gave me her shooting, uh, her call sheets. So uh, the stuff I have is actually from the set of the movie, which was pretty kind of cool to have. Is there, is there a favorite item for you, one that stands out the most? Sentimental, yeah, definitely Sadie. Definitely Sadie's costume. And then she gave me her little shoes, too, because we were, you know, we were really, really close. And uh, and funny, she gave me that. And then that night I was seeing Sue Blaine, and, and I showed it to Sue. She goes, oh, I, I sewed those buttons on for the movie, which is kind of funny that, you know, at that point it was 30 years after the movie was made. So it's kind of cool to have the personal recollections that I got when I wrote the book, these interviews that all the, a lot of them are dead now. You know, so many of these guys are dead now. Uh, it was able to, to actually speak to them and get their versions of the history of making the movie. It was a real treat. So it was through them, through the actual people that did it, that I got these things. I love that you were reaching out to the Transylvanians because so much of watching this and the, the them being the munchkins, they're the Greek chorus, they're all of these things. But it was something else that when I first watched this movie, and again, I was young, I think I was 11 or something, and it was definitely like a rental. And I didn't blink at anything that Frank wore. I didn't blink at any of that. But the I was fascinated i was terrified of riffraff like the especially the in the beginning of the time warp and you see his like his hump he's got this very talk about hammer callback this very pronounced hunchback and i was terrified of him and kind of mildly obsessed with the transylvanians there was such a range of people their casting was so amazing and i liked thinking of oh, what a, they're from a different planet. And in this planet, this is absurd, but I was like, oh, everyone looks like everything, which is of course our planet. It's just that we don't normally put the people that look like everything in the fun costumes doing the dance scene, right? Like normally the dance scene are the solid gold dancers or the MTV dance or whatever I was watching at the time. And I just remember like loving and that I, in, in rewatching it, Um, It's interesting you talked about Sadie needing to provide some of her own wardrobe because I specifically noticed that they all have these really shiny black pants on. And those are not pants you can just buy. And there are several people, uh, there's a larger woman in one of those. And I was like, oh, they tailor made those black pants for, I know, because I would have to have those tailor made. Do you know what I mean? And. And I just remember being young and really struck by how unusual and fun everyone looked. And then the more I watched it, the more it stood out of, oh, I like this. These are not the people that normally get to be the dance, sexy, weird, super. And just their inclusion was wonderful. So I like tracking down their histories too. They, it's they, a lot of the people that were in that were the Transylvanians were local to the Kings Road punk rock scene, friends of Richards. A lot of these guys came from Jesus Christ Superstar because that's that was where they all met. Then then came Hair, which a lot of them were in. And uh, and then some of them were in the movie Tommy because Tommy was made right before Rocky. So like the Jack Nicholson nurse uh, Jack Nicholson, um, he was the doctor, the psychologist, or that was working on Tommy on, 
and Roger Daltrey. His nurse is Imogen Clare, who was the one with the opera glasses, you know, in the movie. And uh, and Gay Brown, who had the fiery orange hair, she was the, the opera singer in Stanley Kubrick, Clockwork Orange, when they go into the milk bar. So a lot of these people came from really amazing places. And there was also an agency in London called Ugly that represented unusual people. So Sadie was from the Ugly agency. Hugh Cecil, who wore the monocle, he had alopecia. Fran Fullenweider, who was actually a Bob of Fellini, the, the large woman, that was Fran Fullenweider. And uh, Stephen Calcutt, the guy who was like six foot ten, you know, he was uh, from the Ugly Agency too. So it, basically, David Taguri w- was given these people and say, here, do something with them all. And uh, so he was choreographing this odd bunch of different shapes and sizes people. And you're right, that was really, I, I never really looked at it that way, but how, how neat it was to see everybody represented in that. You know, every shape, every size, every every color uh, was was represented in that scene. And when I, when I mentioned earlier about the black and white turning to color, and it was supposed to be Frank coming down the elevator, that was going to be the color part. In the original run of the show, Sweet Transvestite was first, then time warp. So all those brilliant colors would come in after Frank came down the elevator and went through the doors. So that's that would have been an amazing explosion of color. This has nothing to do with Rocky Horror, but this is further proof for the last two weeks. I've been talking about Roger Daltrey with everybody I know, so it's nice to know that this episode can have a, a Roger Daltrey reference in it that has nothing whatsoever to do with the, the movie that we're talking about. So yay. Drea, anything else you want to touch on before we start wrapping things up? Anything we didn't mention? No, I think I do like I said, I'm going to use this as a launch pad to go back and fill in a lot of the, you know, the science fiction double features they're mentioning, I, I want to dig further into because I know there's so much reverence there and very obviously Richard was someone very familiar with that type of film and held it in a really like loving place rather than you could tell if this film was done as a mockery or of uh, you know sort of a skewing of that genre and it is not. It fully embraces it. But yeah, I think I think in revisiting I was I was delighted to see how much they did with the venues they had with the people they had in terms of world building and of making all of it really special and unique and I think so often if people aren't revisiting Rocky Horror they maybe should I think that there's something here in terms of reminding yourself where you were when you first saw it but also if you're seeing it with new eyes all of the work that's being done to make it its own special thing and to make every shot count like even to me we barely talked about you know it's this incredible cast but there's these great moments with columbia and magenta for i'm like why are we're watching them watching people and the two of them are sort of like wrapped up in each other what doing each other's nails like there's just all of these things if you give any character that's on screen the thought that's gone into what they're doing if there's layers to it and that is what i'm interested when i go back to rewatch the science fictions that they're referencing a lot of which i haven't actually seen i bet that rocky horror stepped up their game so much more than the the source material did in thinking of the nuance of each shot it's kind of funny if you go back uh, that uh, you know the, the, you mentioned the sets a couple of times. You know they used Oakley Court, the old mansion that was literally across the field from Bray Studios where they filmed it. So the mansion had no roof on it. If you look closely, when you, it was they filmed it during the winter, so it really was raining. When Brad and Jenny go in the front doors, you can see the smoke the, the, the coming out of their mouths. So that scene was filmed actually in the house. 
The staircase is still there. The elevator was fabricated for the film. The Frank Dinner scene that was also uh, filmed in the house and the bits about them on the wheelchair throughout the house was actually filmed in the house. And they really did. Terry Acklin Snow built that dome, literally put a dome on top of that house. I thought it was a special effect. When they made the laboratory, Terry Acklin Snow was really interesting. And he says, well, they, they painted it all this pink. And he says, well, you, you don't have that for tiles. You break all those tiles up and they're all different shades of pink. So if you look at it, every tile is placed and they're all a real place. They don't quite match. But when they were making the movie, they realized there was no door. So they had to have Dr. Scott blast through the tile wall to make a door for the laboratory. So, you know, there's so many odd little facts about that. I, I just adore it. You know, they had to build a swimming pool for, for something on a small budget like that. They literally built the swimming pool at Bray Studios. Uh, it's it pretty neat that the church was. Yeah, no, I, I, no, I could go on and on about the nerdy stuff. I love that kind of stuff. It's just that. Uh, and you mentioned Peter, Peter Rob King's makeup. I believe that Frank's eyes, I think he said, I think it was over a hundred pieces of makeup went into those eyes. A hundred different elements of art went into creating Frank's makeup. And the, and the lips were an afterthought too. The hat, you know, originally it was supposed to be the usherette. Well, the usherette didn't work out. So they had Patricia Quinn's voice, or lips, and then Richard's voice doing that. So. So when they when Pat was brought in well after production to do this, they painted her face completely pitch black, and there's a piece of felt that just covers everything except just her lips. And at that point, Peter Rob King told me he had to, like she had the most nastiest cold sore that day of all the days on her mouth. So, so that was that was how it ended up. Well, when the movie came out and it was going to come out in '75, the poster was kind of dull. So Jaws came out, and then they decided. I know, we'll, we'll go off of that. So that's that poster was made to, to spoof the Jaws poster, a different set of Jaws with the lips. And they had a lip model by the name of Lorelei Sharp to do this, this shoot. So these aren't Pat's lips, but it's this other uh, a lip model that they hired here in Los Angeles to do the photo shoot for the poster. There are so many fun little nerdy facts about uh, that. The stuff that's in the background, you know, the Mona Lisa and the Mickey Mouse ears. And you know a lot of that was their own personal stuff, but there was also, an antique shop that they would raid and that coffin clock was i got to see it in person at this antique shop i wish i could have bought it because it was a real skeleton in this from uh, it was the countess of Rosalind who killed her husband and those are his ashes or his uh, bones in this clock and it was a real skeleton clock and uh, it's just great weird little stories the elevator broke when Brad, when, when Barry Bostwick was in it and came slamming down. And uh, Ken Shepard, who was a stuntman for Eddie, if you notice when Eddie is riding his motorcycle up and around, he's a completely different guy. But he he drove actually off the ledge and broke his foot on during that scene. I it's just so many fun things. It was, it was a real honor to get to, to meet them, to be able to write that book and to, to answer a lot of the, the odd questions that me as a nerdy fan always wondered about. And then I wrote a book. So if you haven't seen it, it's on Amazon. It's called Rocky Horror from Concept to Cult. This is all my interviews and, and all the photographs of all the wonderful people I met and Rick and Peter's script. And yeah, it's, it's a real treat to, to be able to work with those people. Well, I did want to bring up too, you mentioned the Mickey Mouse ears. This is officially a Disney movie because <laughs> Disney owns Fox. <laughs> right, so right. yeah. So let's throw out final thoughts overall. Do we recommend the movie? And let's also throw a favorite song. This 
I mean, it's a musical. You gotta throw out a favorite song. So for me, my favorite song is always a toss up between our opening science fiction double feature and Hot Patootie in terms of ones that I sing regularly. So those, it's a tie for me. But overall, I mean, I think this is a movie that isn't for everybody. I can tell you, my mom does not like this movie. She she'll watch it, she'll tolerate it, but she doesn't really care for it. But when you find people that like this movie you know they're your people. Like, I test my friends based on whether they like this or not. So I think it's I think it's just, it's anarchic, it's fun, it's, as Scott mentioned, debaucherous. It's a classic in the sense that, I mean, it's so ubiquitous to a lot of people. Even if you've never seen the movie, you probably will recognize elements of it because so many other people draw from it. So I, I love it. I love it. But I know that mileage varies. Drea, what are your final thoughts and favorite song? I feel like I gave my final thoughts because it's impossible for me to not wedge them in always. I start with my final thoughts and then just kind of go from there. But I do think people should revisit and I do think it's such a fun, it's just a fun watch. And it's also, it's a better movie. It's not a bad movie either. My favorite, again, re-watching the, the opening song so stands out to me because it is so jam-packed with movie references and it's a fun song anyway. But like the minute you start to, you're like, did he just say Faye Ray? And you're catching on that like they're referencing all these things. But I've always had such a soft spot for, I don't even know if it's actually called Touch a Touch a Touch Me, but The Creature of the Night. I love that song. Susan Sarandon's singing voice is so Minnie Mouse ridiculous. And it's such a like Puritan angle of a sex song. Ugh, I, real soft spot, real <laughs> highlight. <laughs> and Scott, what about you? Final thoughts uh, and favorite song? I, well, favorite, I mean, I love all the music. Time Warp is always going to be my go-to. I have noticed uh, Richard uh, Sharman that wrote the music, that did the music for him. Richard wrote the music, the, the songs itself, but I mean the background music and everything. If you listen to those, there's the Rocky Horror Karaoke album, and it's literally just the music with the vocals taken away. And it is, the orchestrations are great. It's really, really good. I love that part of it. And I've always loved the simple, don't dream it, be it. So, and that Susan Sarandon said the same thing. She goes, she never regretted doing it. I did it because I was afraid to sing. And we had a, it was an interesting time. What not a good shoot. I mean, they don't have good memories of the shoot because it was miserable with the weather and there was no heat, et cetera. But she doesn't regret it for one minute because it's got a great message. Don't dream it, be it. How about, how good is that? So, yeah. Awesome. Well, listeners, send us your thoughts on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com, and we'll read them on the next episode. We once again want to thank Scott Michaels for joining us today. Scott, where can fans find and get in touch with you online, find your work, feel free to promote anything you have upcoming? Well, actually, you know, I do have a video on my YouTube channel of a walkthrough of Oakley Court. I went with my, my my video camera in the front doors and all the way up, all the way through the other rooms up at the top. They're really nice at that hotel to let people do that. They really embraced the Rocky Horror thing. But I, you know, I'm on Facebook at Scott Michaels or Dearly Departed Tours, and any of those is a link to my everything else. Instagram, YouTube channel, find it that, dearlydepartedtours.com. So if you go to dearlydepartedtours.com, there you go. And there's a link to everything I do on that page. And uh, and I thank you guys for having me on. I, I love talking about this film. 
that's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can listen to Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts. We, that includes Spotify, Player FM, or Apple Podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, help us out and leave us a review. We always like to know what you think of the show. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Journeys underscore Film. Drea, where are you online? I am on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I have another contemporary film podcast called Who Shot Ya, which you can get wherever you're getting your podcasts. <laughs> and you can always follow Samantha Ellis at Classic Film Geek, and she also has her website and her Cooking with the Stars column, which you can find online. Hopefully, she'll be back with us next time. And if you want to do more with your dollar, you can head on over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz where we have a whole bunch of stuff you get access to these episodes a whole two days early and you also get pins we're coming out with more merchandise that's exclusive and did i mention there's way more podcasts on that the patreon we have our two supplemental shows based on a true podcast where William Bibiani and I talk about the movies that are based in true stories. We've done a bunch of new episodes. We have our new one coming up on the Oscar soon. And you can also listen to Double Features where Adam Kautzer and I talk about movies that have been remade again and again and again. We just recently put out our episode on all three versions of House of Wax. And I had a couple friends of mine join me for another episode episode where we talked about the two versions of Lolita. And that's on top of just other random shows we've done uh, as the, the pandemic has taken all sense of time away from us. So there's a lot of stuff over there. Patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Till next time.